0: Welcome to Mind Body Health and Politics. I'm your host Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind Body Health and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your mental physical health and encourage community. Encourage community means being with your neighbors being with your family, being together as the social animals that we are. That's what we mean when we say encourage community. Because after all, that's something that we do have a bit of control about, being with our friends and neighbors and families and enjoying a piece of life. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for listening today and for joining me. I hope hope you're well today. I hope the stresses and the strains of everyday life are above you and beyond you and not right on you at this time. You're listening to a program on health and politics, so I assume that health and politics are important topics to you. Should you want to hear past programs of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, you can go to the archives at KZYX or our website, mindbodyhealthandpolitics.org. If you want to communicate with us during the program, maybe you'd like to communicate, but you don't want people to hear your voice for some reason, you can send an email to dj at kzyx.org. That's dj at kzyx.org. Send an email in. Maybe you're going to have a question or a comment For our guest, who we're going to bring on in a few moments, we have a special guest today, Dr. Ofer Zur. Dr. Zur, well, I'll tell you more about him in a few minutes, but perhaps enough to say right now that this is a pioneering psychologist who brings a life to his practice. Because before, he was a psychologist. He was a paratrooper. He's a motorcyclist. He's a father. He's a family man. He brings a lot to the table. Stay tuned. You're going to hear from Dr. Fazur. First, I usually talk about little notes in psychology and medicine. Today I have a note that, what can I say here, is disturbing but not surprising. Disturbing but not surprising. It's a note about my own profession. A painstaking, years-long effort to reproduce, a hundred studies published in three leading psychology journals has found that more than half of the findings did not hold up when retested. The implications of this are huge because it also trans. Furs over to medicine because the people in the medical field are finding the same thing, and of course, I've been ranting for years about the research that is supported by the pharmaceutical companies, which is definitely biased. But why, why are these studies by psychologists at universities? Why can they not be replicated? I think back to some years ago in England when we had a very famous psychologist named Dr. Cyril Burt, who did these, these supposedly world-shaking studies on twins. Why are psychologists interested in twins? Because twins offer the possibility of shedding light on what's called the nature-nurture controversy. Nature-nurture. Are we the way we are because of what we have inherited through our genetic structure? nature? Or are we the way we are because what we have learned in our environment since birth? Nurture. Heredity versus environment. Well, twins offer a great opportunity because if the twins are identical and they are separated at birth, then you can look at what they're like as adults and say, hmm, two different environments But if they're acting the same way, obviously it's heredity. It's nature, not nurture. So good old Cyril Burt found himself at least a hundred sets of identical twins, not an easy thing to do, who were separated at birth, an even more difficult thing to do, and he followed them up and he published his research. Old Dr. Cyril Burt had an agenda. He wanted to prove to the world that schizophrenia was inherited. And so, obviously, if you have separated 100 sets of twins at birth and you find that 20 years later, a very high percentage of them, when have one has schizophrenia, then the other has schizophrenia, you can deduce that it must be hereditary because they couldn't have had the same environments. Why would the, And then why would the two of them both become schizophrenic? So Dr. Cyril Burt studied his, pub, his paper, I mean, re- research his paper, studied researched, published, and became world so world-famous that Dr. Cyril Burt was knighted by the Queen of England. Some years later, graduate students poking around in his attic found the original data from Dr. Cyril Burt, and like the psychologists in the study that I read to you earlier, saying that more than 50 of the papers of the 100 studies had to be retracted Yes, retracted. Fifty papers from top journals had to be retracted. They had to write articles in the journals saying those studies are being pulled back from the public. The graduate students in Cyril Burt's attic found his data, attempted to replicate his data, and found that Dr. Cyril Burt had fudged the data. Yes, fudged the data. Sir Cyril Burt. Nobody is pointing a finger saying that the psychologists in these cases fudge their data but they are confirming the worst fears of scientists who have worried so long about the possibility that the field like the stock market needs a correction and why is it why is it that the field needs a correction if they're not fudging their data but they're so, so sloppy or is it emotional distress some are saying the competition the competition amongst the psychologists at this university the competition to publish is so great that it is putting tremendous stress on them and the same thing is happening in the medical profession and the same thing is happening in other areas this is an example of how competition rather than cooperation is undermining our culture and that has been going on since the beginning of recorded history. And I ask, when do we cease? When do we stop? When do we start cooperating? When do we let go of the biggest guy coming out of the cave with the biggest stick is the one who wins? That is the procedure that we've been following. And forgive me if I'm coming on a bit too strong, but I'm passionate about this subject, and I will say that the what I'm about to say here, it is not the opinion of the station of KZYX nor any of the employees nor my friend Mike DeLora sitting next to me engineering. This is my opinion. My opinion is that we have not come very far when it comes to human relations, and I'm looking forward to hearing what our guest Dr. Zur has to say about this topic. 10,000 years ago, 1% of the... Of, of Egypt ran everything. The pharaohs, the religious leaders, and the military, 1% at the top, and everybody else were slaves. If you look up slavery on the internet, you will see that every country in the world has been involved in slavery. If you look up slavery on the internet, you will find that there are, at this point, it's considered that there are about 30 to 40 million people who are slaves and you can see which countries they live in. A slave is a person that is owned by another, it's a human being that is owned by another human being, like a piece of furniture, like a car. We own people, and we have owned people since maybe the beginning, no, not the beginning, it came about later on, which we'll talk about at another time. George Washington owned 300 slaves. Can you picture living somewhere, anywhere, wherever you happen to live, living out in the country and owning 300 human beings, mothers, fathers, children, brothers, sisters, owning 300 people? You own them. You can do anything you want with them. 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, you own these people. You could kill them and bury them if you wanted to. You don't have to feed them. Some slave owners had people working until they died 18 hours a day. It's my opinion that we have not gotten very much past that, that most of us are still wage slaves, that we're living in a system that we're brainwashed into because we just keep going with a system because we, none of us, the whole world, doesn't take the time to sit back and say, hey, this is one experiment we're on, but do we have to continue it forever? Who decided that it's a 40-hour work week? It used to be 60 and 70. Now it's down to 40. So you work 40 hours for your pay. But by the time you get to work and get home to work from work, it could be a 60 hours of your, of your life every week for your paycheck. But who decided this? Who is to say you couldn't work two days a week and get the exact same amount of pay and then have five days to live life? Where did this whole concept of work even come from? It came from slavery because there are those who want others to do and when you have a lot more than others, you can get them to do or if you have a lot more power, such as a club or nowadays a military. I think we're running a worldwide slave ship, and we are so involved in it ourselves that we're not even aware that we're in it. We think this is just life. But I'm here to tell you that the people who are living in the prisons in North Korea that are called the prisons of three generations where they take people and their parents and their cousins and their brothers and their sisters and everybody in their family for three generations and put them in prison and then people are born in that prison and they live their lives and die in that prison. They don't know that there's anything outside their prison. So they live in that prison as this is the way life is. And for those of you, I remind you, who read Hermann Hesse's novel Siddhartha, and if you haven't read it, take a look. You'll remember that in the beginning Siddhartha lived inside a castle and he thought the whole world was the castle. That's how life was until one day he looked over the wall and he saw that there's another world outside. And I'm raising the question, is there another world in the way we live our world? Where all of us are so much working all the time and competing all the time. For what? Competing to the point where 100... Papers are studied, 100 science papers are studied for years, and 50 of them have to be retracted. And this speaks volumes about what people believe in psychology, my own profession, what we believe in medicine. I hope you see the connection. If it's not clear, let me know. The connection between slavery, competition, Walking lockstep through life as if this is the only way to live a life. Working 40, 50 hours a week as as if that's a given. None of these are givens. These are things that we as human beings are making up. I've got to stop right now and bring on Dr. Ophazur. Excuse me for going on so long, perhaps. Dr. Ophazur is a licensed psychologist, writer, forensic consultant, and a lecturer. He's a pioneer in the development of an ethical and effective managed care-free, again, managed care-free psychotherapy. He's a prolific writer and researcher. He's taught for years in the Bay Area and around the country. He's written four books. He's co-edited the landmark book, Dual Relationships. We're going to talk about dual relationships. That's when you see a therapist and then... You have another relationship with them, maybe socially or maybe at a party. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics, over.
1: Oh, thank you. You know, it's so, so interesting you brought up the issue of the uh, replicability of the studies and the validity of the studies. And uh, I'll put my two cents in here. Please. If you don't mind. I want
0: to hear everything you have to say, sir.
1: You know, they. we need to differentiate, I think, the forces that operates in medicine, the way you describe the schizophrenic studies, rather than what we have just right now seen about uh, kind of therapies that help people and stuff like that. In medicine, the major forces are pharmaceutical that you mentioned. Uh, the The pharmaceutical people kind of almost uh, own the field and the uh, uh, on what will be published and what will not. So we can uh, look for the dollar sign whenever we see almost most, if not all, medical research about whether statin drugs or any other drugs, including drugs called schizophrenia and stuff like that. In the field of psychology, we have three Different forces than the pharmaceutical that created the havoc and the non scientific kind of uh, uh, results that you described so accurately. First of all, is the issue of tenure. People have the pressure to publish. If you don't publish, you perish. So they have incredible pressure to publish. Good or bad article, just publish. Second one, there is incredible attachment for people in the field of psychology to their own theory, whether it's psychoanalytic or, or psychodynamic or behavioral therapy, and people tend to view the world from that point of view, and that skewed their research and make it less applicable and less replicable. The other one is something that you have also alluded in many of your programs, that psychology is not really only a science. We do have some research or hard kind of data, but it's an art. You and I have been in the field for long enough now to know that it's a, it is an artful. It's, it's about connection between people. It's about empathy and sympathy that cannot be really reduced to number and not easily replicable. The best therapists in the world were not wedded to certain orientation, whether pearls or, or yalom or uh, Freud or Jung, all, the one thing they didn't have in common is theoretical orientation. But they were capable of connecting with people in a certain way. And this is something very hard to replicate and very hard to quantify. So I think what happened in medicine we, we can that the, the research is so flawed, it had to do with pharmaceutical pressure, and uh, in psychology, it has to do with the three-factor that I described. Uh, so we are not in a science. We need to come to time with that. We are in science as well as it is an art that you and I have been practicing for so long.
0: The um, the three things, again, that uh, that Ofer just mentioned that he thinks are, are biasing psychological research. One, publish or perish on the, on the art of the, the scientists themselves. They've got a fresher to publish. Two is that they have an agenda that they're pushing, so they're not being scientists, they're being uh, salespeople. And the third is uh, so important that uh, psychology and psychotherapy is is as much or more an art than it is a science. Uh, These are very well elaborated here, Ofer. Uh, On this one that uh, you're talking about, science versus art and the importance of connecting, you know... uh, Consumer Reports did a a study a few years ago that totally validate what you just said, where they, they said the most important thing in psychotherapy is goodness of fit. They called it goodness of fit between the client or patient and the therapist, and that's what you're talking about. You heard me mention in the introduction something called dual relationships I mentioned about your book your famous book on dual relationships please explain to the listeners in a way we can all understand what is meant by dual relationships and why is it why is it important in in their lives the listeners' lives and particularly people in small towns
1: and as you said particular people in small town like where you live and I live right here in Northern California and uh, there is a myth in the field of psychology that uh, having a relationship with your therapist outside the therapy room is wrong, it's unethical, it leads to uh, unethical behavior, it leads to exploitation or even sex. And, um, and it's really kind of a pretty crazy belief system that some ethicists uh, develop. I remember when I moved to Sonoma, in 1988, and uh, um, somebody I played basketball with wanted me to see him and his wife, and uh, in therapy. And it was interesting because he wanted me as his therapist because he saw me on a basketball court, not in spite of. Because we have relationship outside the therapy room, he knew me as a real person. He saw how I treat. My children. He saw how I treat my dogs. He he saw how I treat to bed calls from the raft. And he saw me losing my temper. He saw me as a real person. And that led to him to want to see me in therapy. But therapists created a mythology that we should not have any other relationship other than therapy. It's not true for uh, many physicians. It's not true for our accountants. It's not true for our radio hosts. But somehow in therapy, we, we created this bubble that uh, people can do not know us and then get to idealize us. So I, I was uh, among the people who tried to kind of uh, burst this myth. And uh, and talk about that sometimes in rural communities, it's not only unavoidable that you have other relationships with your therapist, it's actually how small communities thrive and survive is by interrelationship, interreliance on each other in many ways. So I see my clients here in Sebastopol in the farmer market. I see them uh, with my kids' school, and they get to know me as a whole person. So I spent the last fifteen years kind of debunking the myth, helping the ch- the code of ethics uh, to change. So they are now all of them saying that not all dual relationship are unethical but still when therapists go to training they often get kind of uh, this mythology that you should never have dual relationship with your clients it's not it's not possible in small town and it's not only not desirable either because how this is how small towns thrive on interrelationship on complex Relationship with each other that we have in a small town, and we're not only neighbors, but we have some neighbors, and we also a, a barter a product. And a, whether it's an artist or a, is a farmer, we do bartering, which is a healthy part of small town. We rely on each other in many ways in order to thrive in small communities.
0: When I was teaching at the University of Michigan, Ofer, I sat in on a budgetary meeting one time. And for hours, there was an argument about a budgetary item. The analytic therapists wanted the building of a special toilet that only they would go to. Their argument being they didn't want a client or a patient to ever see them outside the office, let alone in a bathroom. It was such an extreme that, the, that the, these analysts took with regard to never being seen outside of the therapeutic office that it was a joke amongst the students because this was a, a student counseling center at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And it was such a joke that one day I was walking down the street and, and, a, and a client was walking towards me and she looked at me with a finger and said to her friends, what is he doing out? And, yeah. uh, right? What am I doing? <laughs> how did I possibly get outside the office? That was, that was the joke. It, 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 that's how extreme it was and that's where we come from. You've taken a very different position, and I know you've influenced the field in a positive direction. What more can you say to our listeners about selection of a counselor or a therapist? They they want to call a psychologist. They're having, well, I'm not going to say what kind of issues they're having. I'm going to ask you what the most common issues are. But first, let's talk about what kind of advice you would give with regard to selection.
1: You... In, it, it's a very good question, and selecting a therapist, it, you need to be able to interview him or her. So if you're dealing with the most common issues of depression, anxiety, parenting, a trauma, you ask the therapist questions that matters to you. H- have you dealt with people in depression? What is your view of depression? Is it existential? Is it spiritual base? Is it existential? Uh, I mean, is it part of our existence, or do you think it has to do with my relationship to God? Ask your therapist questions that matters to you about who he is or she is. You can ask him, "Do you believe in God?" If this matters to you, if you can ask him, "What is your view of uh, community?" You can ask them, what is your view of GMOs? You can ask questions that matters to you, that you will be able to trust your healer. You will be able to trust your soul healer. And if the therapist, if you are a bisexual or LGBT, you want to ask him about the sexual orientation. And it may, maybe it doesn't matter what the sexual orientation, but the, what matters more is can they talk about the sexual orientation without feeling defensive? So uh, ask questions that matters to you. If the therapist is hiding behind the facade of the PhD or MFT or LCSW and answer you with a question like, why would you like to know that, uh, Try to ask again, and if you don't get an answer, it may not be your person. You need to be able to get a sense that this person is trustworthy, and you know their value. You know what you know about them. What you think is important for you to know about them. If they are hiding behind the facade, the professional facade, and do not answer the questions, uh, that's not may be the person for you. Another way to look, to find more information about your therapist at this day and age is, of course, to Google them. Uh, you Google them and you find all kind of information about them online. Of course, we know that if you go to Yelp or other sites like that, you may get some negative evaluation, which is, okay, I don't always, or not all my clients like what I do or what I say. and Sometimes they may go online and write negative review which is fine so having some negative reviews are also part of kind of a, the mix of information that you get so going online and finding information about your therapist is another way to, uh, to explore is he or she are the right person for you and then when you meet with them uh, you just get a sense Do, does this person listen, does this person hear me, does this, does this person try to figure out Where where are my struggles, whether it's my children or with God or with uh, substance abuse or substance use? Uh, Do they respect my choice of substances? And uh, so do you feel judged, or do you feel that this person is uh, open and ready to inquire about who you are?
0: So what you're you're saying, if I understand you, is that we as clients or patients, and I'll make that differentiation in a moment or two of what I mean by the difference between a client and a patient, but we, you you believe that we are entitled to interview our potential therapist and ask them just about anything. We could ask them, as you said, do you believe in God? I think you're implying that you could say to your therapist... "Um, are you straight or are you gay?
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, is there any limit? I mean, we, you and I, over, as, as licensed psychologists, I mean, we get to be the nosiest people in the world. In, in, in the, under the flag of help, we get to ask anything and everything. And it sounds like you're suggesting that our clients and patients get to ask us anything and everything as well.
1: They get to ask us if I feel there is some kind of a question that I feel is private. I'm entitled to my privacy. And that would be up to the client to decide whether me kind of not responding to some questions is something that will be a barrier or not. I think that... Uh, the same way the clients don't need to tell us everything, they're, they're entitled to have their own kind of uh, a set of uh, pri- privacy around them. We all are entitled. Uh, the things that I share with you in the interview and uh, I may not share with you what I share with uh, my son, uh, 20 years old, this morning around breakfast or with my wife or my best friend. So uh, or we have this Israeli Anonymous meeting on Fridays, and I, I share things that I won't share in other situations. So uh, sometimes therapists are entitled not to answer, but then I, I can say respectfully, explain why I don't want to answer.
0: Yes, so the person is listening and getting a feel for how you're, whether you're hiding or whether you're being straightforward, basically whether you're being authentic. Exactly.
1: Authenticity does not mean I need to reveal anything to everybody, because like everybody else, I have kind of uh, the circle of intimacy that some people within the circle of intimacy will hear. Or or different people, as I say, kind of, we talk about kind of, uh, we have this Israeli Anonymous every Friday. We're meeting at 1 o'clock in a Palestinian restaurant here in Sebastopol, and we're in recovery kind of group. And uh, we, we share things that not, I, I will not necessarily share with my wife.
0: I remember Virginia Satir saying to me, Richard, feel everything you say, but you don't have to say everything you feel. Beautiful. <laughs>
1: Beautiful. You uh, me- but, I, but I have to respect a client to ask a question is, is legitimate, and I'll respectfully explain why I choose may choose not to answer it, but already by me respectfully responding, the client get a sense that I'm not just putting myself away from uh, him, but I have a good legitimate reason and I even model to the client that it is okay to have a a circle of intimacy around me that I'm choosing when and how and to whom to share what. So this could be even a modeling experience, authentic modeling
0: experience. We're here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our distinguished guest today is Dr. Ofer Zuer. He's a licensed psychologist, a writer, forensic consultant, and a lecturer all around the United States. It's our privilege to have him here today. Ofer, you mentioned four things that people typically come in to uh, see a psychologist for. Depression, anxiety, relationships, and trauma. I'm sure there are others, but those are the first four that you mentioned. How does a person know when what they're experiencing is, quote, like over the line from just how you this is life, you you got to deal with it, it's, and uh, this is just how it is, and you wake up and you're in a mood and then you won't be in a mood, or you're anxious and scared but then you won't be and you have some tools. How do you know, how does a person know when it's time to get that professional help? Because in medicine it's much more obvious, you know, I mean if your tooth is aching, you know you go to the dentist and if blood's coming out or you've got pain in your side and the pain keeps going, you, you get you go, you go and get medical help. But with psychological stuff... Give us some help here. How does a person know when it's time, and not waiting too long, when it's time to make that call?
1: I think that uh, it will be important for a person to see whether this, this, what the struggle with, does it, in, does it interfere with their life? Interfere with the capacity to connect with people, to connect with God, to connect with nature to connect with the life of the Spirit. And even when you go to a therapist, the therapist may normalize your experience. So you have an existential anxiety about meaning. And, and let's say you are not a religious person and you find life kind of being meaningless. And the therapist may be able to tell you this is an existential issue, that means it's part of our existence, and this kind of suffering is, is normal. This kind of suffering means that you care. This kind of suffering means that you are doubling with issues, existential issues that are not being going to be resolved very easy. So you need to, to look for meaning, not because you are broken. So I don't like the analogy for medicine, for the toothache, because toothache has to be fixed. Many times people come to me with existential issues that do not need to be fixed, that just need to be clarified and attended to. So if somebody has a sense of meaninglessness, the person is not broken. The person just needs a guide, not necessarily a doctor, to fix him or her, but need some kind of guidance in how to find and to search for meaning in his or her life. Most of the people that I see are not broken. Most of the people that I see do not have any mental diagnosis. Almost all the people I see are struggling with life issues, where they again depression, anxiety, uh, issues of parenting, end-of-life issues. So I deal with issues that do not fall under any kind of diagnostic category of the DSM or, or the ICDs, the diagnostic manuals that uh, so many people use. They are dealing with life issues, primarily uh, issues of meaning and spirituality and relationship. And they experience it maybe as depression. They may experience it as anxiety. But it's really a normal part of being a human being on the planet at this day and age with the pressures that you discussed earlier on at the beginning of the program, economic pressures and uh, communal pressures, isolation in many communities, in many, for many people, especially in the Western world, etc. So I see people not because they are broken, just because they are striving to live more meaningfully and closer to the life of the spirit.
0: I drive down the street And I see, when I see a teenager, not necessarily an adult as much, but when I see a teenager or a person in their early 20s walking down the street homeless, I start to cry. Sometimes I cry so much that I have to pull the car over and compose myself. Yeah. Is this an abnormal reaction? Is this a normal reaction? It's not interfering with my day after I drive away. But it's it's, a, a,
1: a, even if it lingers during the day it's a human response to to a sad statement that we have a community that's 20 years old does not have a base it does not have a community to hold and your tears show your health not that and you as these tears may need a place to be held but not necessarily to be fixed.
0: That's a nice distinction, though, for a place to be held, not necessarily fixed. It bewilders me at times.
1: And how, I'll cry with how... If you come to me, to my practice with it, I'll cry with you, probably. Right now, I have some tears in my eyes, as you describe it. So we'll sit in my room, both of us, with tears. And that can be healing for you and for me.
0: It bewilders me, Ofer, how one person can drive in a in a platinum, literally a platinum Mercedes. I saw one of the Arab sheiks in a platinum Mercedes, and I walk. I can walk down the street and see a starving nineteen-year-old. It bewilders me what uh, how how this how the, all of us do not feel the same sense of of responsibility for all of us. It's it's and a, this
1: a, bewilderment is is a strength. It's not not to be fixed, the last thing in the world I would like to take away our capacity to feel this deep compassion but sometimes to feel this compassion with another person where we both shed these tears of sorrow and social outrage at the same time that we that we may feel then you feel it normalized and it has a different sense to it because it's it, 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 now it's healthy response and even if it's interfere with your day it may be still healthy as it ought to interfere with your day i hope neither you nor i if we see that we don't forget about it it may linger with us it may come into lunch conversation uh, with a colleague or with a with my wife or it will come into Perhaps uh, the next walk with a friend in the afternoon in here in Sevastopol. So, if if it affects me, it should affect me. And what we call therapy, consultation, can normalize it, can can make sense of it, can provide meaning to this experience.
0: Let's switch. Rather th-
1: than pathologizing and giving uh-huh. you a pill so you won't feel it anymore. Yeah. You.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I I remember a patient one time poignantly saying to me that that she she had anxiety and she went to a doctor and he wanted to give her a pill for it and she she looked at me and she said the pill would take away any opportunity I have of learning. Beautiful. Let's talk about.
1: You know, I have a cartoon here in my office. And, it's, and you see the cow sitting on the on the psychoanalyst couch, and uh, she's being analyzed. And she tells the analyst, "Doctor, I am not sick. The herd is sick."
0: <laughs> you, men- <laughs> you mentioned cow, and I'm laughing because somebody somebody gave us a thousand pound steer as a present the, that was raised as a Labrador Retriever. So. Uh, we, we have a, In our yard, we have a 1,000-pound Labrador Retriever. I'm getting, I'm getting a little uh, message here so, from uh, Michael, so let's read it. What do you have there, Michael? We have a message from uh, someone here saying, Perhaps the Buddha said, Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Is suffering normal? And when should one be done with therapy? And he says, by the way, I just received the Woody Allen Longevity and Counseling Award. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah. Did you hear the question, Ofer?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, if you look at therapy as supporting your life with your existential, rel- relational, and spiritual uh, need, uh, it's... a uh, it, it, you may want to use it at kind of coming and going into therapy or things like therapy, where a group of friends can be therapeutic. Uh, the the priest, the the yoga teacher, so we can get this therapeutic support in many ways, not only from a therapist. And I believe that suffering—it's our goal—is not to reduce suffering. Is Hopefully, to make meaning out of suffering. Uh, I mean, I don't want to stop being sensitive to the twenty years old homeless, or to what happened right now all over the world with platinum drive cars and whatever other injustices we see. I don't want to stop my capacity to suffer uh, because it's my capacity, it's my calibration uh, to to issues of justice, to issues of fairness. To So the goal is not to be without suffering, but to make meaning out of suffering. And then we want, we want to be able to have similar way of experiencing joy. So when suffering is overtaking everything for a long period and we are not able to feel joy, perhaps we are not in a balance. And this is something we would like to seek, that we are able to feel joy as well as the sadness and despair. We can embrace death in a in a good open way, not as a failure, not in a medical way, but it doesn't mean that it sometimes we won't fall into despair. So kind of the fluidity is what's important. Not necessarily kind of uh, and we're not done with that. I think we kind of we continue to to ask these questions, to develop sensitivities, and to attend to different stages of life in a different way. So our growth doesn't stop, but it's not only therapy can attend to these issues Mm of of Mm -hmm. meaning and spirit.
0: Mm -hmm. We've got a call here, Ofer. We're going to take a call. Uh, Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air.
2: Yeah, hi, Richard uh, and Ofer. This is Jay Holden in Lakeport local psychologist. Um, Hi, Jay. Hi. Oprah, I was real pleased to see you down in Sebastopol a couple weeks ago. You did a presentation on shrinks in cinema. Yeah. uh, I thought it was quite fascinating. Um, And, and Richard, I'm so pleased to find this uh, program and what you're doing. Um, You know, psyche from psychology uh, means soul, the study of the soul. What I found, and I think you guys did too in graduate school, is they taught us a psychology with the science of behavior. I am so thrilled to hear a program this long and not hear the word behavior brought up. Um, it's just, uh, and you're talking about the soul, you're talking about the really what I always felt were the important things in our field. Um, so, um, my thanks to you for your enlightening and progressive show here. And um, I just wanted to know. Um, I don't have a particular question, but I want to know if either of you have read uh, uh, the book that deals uh, in a very progressive, enlightened way with both therapy and medications. It's called The Heroic Client A Revolutionary Way to Improve Effectiveness through Client Centered Outcome Informed Therapy. Um, have either of you read that? Uh,
1: no, I haven't, Jay.
0: I haven't read it, and I'd be happy oh. if you'd send me the, uh, a link to it, an email.
1: But, I would highly recommend. Good, but don't really go. But somebody.
0: please, Jay, don't hang up. Please, I'd li- while I have two psychologists on the phone, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to take it. Advi- I've got both of you on the phone. I'm going to take advantage of the situation, and I'm going to pose a question to both of you. Relationships: How does a wife, mostly it's the wives who make the first step, or a husband, because sometimes the husbands do. How do a wife or a husband know? When what they're going through, let's say in early marriage, first couple, what is an early marriage? I'll ask you that. How many years is still considered an early part of the marriage? And how does a young or not a young take away young? How does a couple of any age, because I got married at seventy-two recently, um, how does a how does a couple know? When it's time to make that call to a professional or whether what they're going through is just this is part of living with another person under the roof and you got to deal with it. I'm
2: going to say that I'm not qualified to answer this. I'm a single man. I'm going to turn
1: this over to Ofer. What an
0: honest. There's an honest (laughs) therapist. (laughs) That's terrific, Jay. Thank you. Ofer?
1: That's a great answer, by the way. That ties to kind of, uh, sometimes if you ask your therapist a question and sometimes you'll say, I don't know the answer for that, that will increase my trust in this therapist that uh, they can say, I don't know. So uh, I think when you you have the same fight again and again and you have lingering thoughts uh, again and again that interrupt with the flow of love, when you fall into patterns that interfere with your life and it's not just fleeing phase in therapy, so just the first uh, uh, few months after the baby was born, but it goes now for a year and a half later, or uh, it's like uh, whatever the stage of life, the empty nest, and it kind of, whenever things are kind of uh, start being repetitive, and uh, sometimes toxic to the relationship. You have a resentment that doesn't go away. It's a time to seek a rabbi, a priest, or a therapist, uh, not because you are broken, just because you need a facilitation. You need somebody to help you kind of uh, not get stuck. So when you feel like it has been repetitive and stuck, it's a time to, uh, to seek some support whether from a friend, from online uh, therapist in Kathmandu, whatever it is, from a local therapist. Uh, so it's a time to do uh, something about it. when there's a sense of stuckness and repetition. You have the same fight again and again. You can say what she said and she can say what you said. This is a, this is a time kind of to seek uh, support. Not again because you are broken, just because you need some facilitation.
0: Would you make the same uh, comment about the other, um, the other modalities, uh, the other conditions that you describe, uh, anxiety and depression, take the same tack that when you feel like you're in a, in a repetitive pattern with the de- depression or anxiety, that's the time to make the call?
1: Absolutely. When you kind of feel, uh, you know, somebody die, you feel very sad, and you, and you kind of you are in a normal grief, and it can take a while. But if you feel that kind of uh, 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 that, uh, the grief uh, it doesn't doesn't provide you with more meaning, and the grief really kind of you, you are stuck in the grief, or, and this is a time to get facilitation of the grief, not necessarily even to alleviate the grief. But to create more meaning out of the grief, it's again, it's not necessarily, So when you you are stuck, like you have a, a trauma, a car trauma, you were molested as a as a as a child, a, as a woman, you were sexually abused, and you continue to seek men who will mistreat you. So when you see that this is a second, a third, and fourth man that you are, you you choose them, and two months down the line, the men starting being abusive you tell yourself i'm repeating something here and i need some help to stop this repetition and this is a time to to seek help so it's true for for uh, depression it's true for trauma for uh, for anxiety uh, as well but again it's not because you're broken just because you need uh, some help to move along the existential spiritual journey
0: Jay, are you still with us? I am. Jay, what what uh, what do you see most commonly coming to your office in Lakeport?
2: Well, currently my specialty is forensic psychology. I see. So, so I don't keep an office and see clients. Um, it's a whole other area. Of That's right. That uh, I'd be happy to discuss with you sometime because it's a pretty interesting uh, uh, area, but. Uh, just, you know, when I did when I did, uh, when I did do client work, it was those very issues that Ophers mentioned, yeah. uh, trauma, anxiety, depression. These are yeah. kind of the diseases of our age.
0: Right. By the way, for our listeners, Dr. Holden saying he's a forensic psychologist means he's involved with legal issues, legal and, and, and court issues. Um, well, let me let you go, Jay, and thank you so much for calling. I look forward to meeting you.
2: I just uh, love your show. Keep it up.
0: Thank you so much. And by the way, if you want to send us a, a, a quick email, we have uh, five, six minutes left. You can send it to dj at kzyx.org, dj at kzyx.org. The phone number here is uh, 707-937-5103, 707-937-5103. Ofer, you and I are back. Yeah. What, is, uh, what do you see going into the future of psychology? Are we going to maintain ourselves as a profession? There are those who say that uh, that the pharmaceuticals are going to take over and there's going to be no more profession of psychiatry. There's going to be no more profession of psychology, that everybody's going to go and take a pill. In fact, CVS Pharmacy is now opening up treatment centers, I believe, right in the pharmacy in their big stores, and some are, are predicting that the future is going to be going into a CVS Pharmacy uh, telling them a couple of things or filling out a questionnaire, they push a button and give you the pills and out you go.
1: Uh, the future of medicine actually will be uh, taking a fur- uh, step further from the CVS will be online. <laughs> the, and uh, like so many other things kind of moved online, uh, medicine is going to move to telemedicine. So uh, we'll sit here in five, six years. You 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 have some, symptoms, you're going to go online either via text or via phone or via email or via Skype type video conferencing. You're going to talk to a nurse practitioner most probably uh, or a doctor and they'll ask you some questions and give you the meds online. So medicine will be very different in, in the near future. It's already changing the VA and uh, Many other organizations already treating people uh, remotely. Most states are allowing physicians to treat online. Therapies, psychotherapy, or counseling also moving online. So the CVS will be kind of a stopgap. It's really going to be online. And uh, in my in my book, it's it's a good move. It's uh, will save a lot of money, and uh, and a lot of things can be resolved and uh, via good. Uh, interview uh, kind of video conferencing online. So the future is of, of medicine is online and uh, the train left the station. And I think it's a very good move because you can get the best physician in the best states to, to treat you, etc. When it comes to psychotherapy, we are uh, moving somewhat online. That means, for example, I'm working right now with uh, a, a few people, in some in Northern California and some in Southern California. Uh, I'm working with them on the phone or via video conferencing. So it's uh, it, this is people who, who chose me because uh, they read my stuff or attended to a lecture of mine or listened to a lecture online. So we are working... Um, uh, some of them prefer by phone it's interesting when we work by phone I I write notes they write notes and it's highly effective they don't need to deal with uh, tracking my responses to what they say it's a little bit going back to psychoanalysis when the clients (laughs) cannot see the, uh, the therapy so they can focus on their own internal process back to kind of original psychoanalytic kind of uh, uh, way in a kind of interesting way. So psychotherapy will be moving online. Now, uh, back to your question. Yeah, we.
0: by the way, we've got two minutes, so we've got to wrap okay, it up. Okay,
1: back to, back to One your minute. question about does, it, does psychotherapy is going to be reduced to medication? Uh, we see, sadly, a lot of it... The kind of short-term psychotherapy uh, and a lot of it rely on medication even though medication is not more effective by no means that uh, but supposedly it's shorter and cheaper it's not cheaper actually so we, we're going to have attention we have some people who will do what you and I describe soulful psychotherapy and then we'll have the medi- m- medicalization of our field which is very sad because knock out somebody anxiety or depression may not be the best way because anxiety depression can help you seek meaning.
0: That's a perfect place to stop. Thank you so much, Dr. Ophazur. It's been a privilege. I've loved working with you today, and I look forward to working with you in the future.
1: Yeah, anytime, Richard. You have a fantastic show.
0: Thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's program on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike Delora. Please join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.